0: From the New York Institute for the Humanities podcast, I'm Robert Boynton. In this episode of The Vault, we'll hear from Art Spiegelman, whose graphic novel Mouse won a Pulitzer Prize in 1992. On May 7, 2011, he spoke at the Institute's symposium, Second Thoughts on the Memory Industry. I was invited here, I suppose, because of Maus, which is now seen as an act of commemoration and indeed is about to be commemorated by me as a book I've been fighting a deadline on that'll be out in October, which is indeed a book of an anniversary, not the anniversary of the death camps, but the anniversary of the creation of Maus. Mao's actually has gone through this weird uh, reification process that's exemplified an example, let's say, of the kinds of things that are involved in this cultural force toward commemoration. By the time I finished Mao's, I understood it as a a 13-year-long project that was a 13-year-long yardside candle, all resting on a tombstone of my father's um, and mother's grave. And yet, I didn't experience the making of it as that at all. It was really much more edible than that okay, if both my parents are supposed to be dead, how did they get around to fucking and have me? And there was a, a narrative to unpack, to get there. And even in the course of making it, I fretted and worried because the book came out in two parts. That was the complete mouse I flashed at you. But the book was basically... Part one was published, for reasons too complicated to go into here, separately, and... After the first book came out, I flipped out. I didn't want or expect success. I wanted to be read to a degree. And the comics I'd been making before Mao's were all very formal, experimental comics that in the environment that comics were being made in had an audience of about 12. And that's good for galleries, but not for publishing. And I had to find my way toward a narrative, and it became my father's story. And yet when the first book came out and was actually quite successful, I felt myself as living on top of this pile of corpses and uh, having journalists and vest franchisers scrambling up the pile of corpses to make deals. And it wasn't the impulse that I'd been involved in that basically what became a public event grew out of a very private situation, like in a more recent book, Breakdowns, I describe it here as in one sequence what a fancy affair everybody was invited even Yannick yes but nobody would sit near him my parents always spoke Polish to each other poor guy huh who's Yannick so the pitcher with a big ear is listening why don't people sit with him in Auschwitz he was a sonderkommando he threw Jews in the ovens why if not the Germans will throw him in the ovens so it wasn't his fault right Yeah, but it's rumors he put to the ovens his wife and son, so nobody wants to sit. Take a nap, again, cookie. It's uh, still a long drive, and we're just having grown-up talk. (laughs) So that was really the form that my brush with what now is known as the Holocaust uh, happened, although at the time the word Holocaust didn't quite exist. It's even a gleam even in Elie Wiesel's eye. It was just called the war, the war happened. And there's one book I remembered seeing when I was a kid, which was uh, very magisterial. It was the biggest book in the house. It was two volumes. It was 11 by 14 thick with color pictures at a time when color printing was expensive. It had a record inside it of Winston Churchill's speeches and it was a time-life book called The Second World War. And as time went on, I got to feel so ripped off on the behalf of my parents who bought it because um, I think they were trying to find out what happened to them. And as Timothy Snyder pointed out, uh, what happened wasn't clear in the immediate aftermath of uh, history written by the generals and very specifically uh, from a German lens. So in this book, the, uh, the Jews have literally a drag-on part. Just one sentence in this entire two volumes, pretty much, which is, worst off was the mass of miserable humanity herded into the concentration camps, Jews, political prisoners, underground fighters, gypsies, hostages, black market dealers, and miscellaneous thousands who ran afoul of Himmler's police. And that's pretty much the reference to Jews in 1960 and the magisterial history. And obviously that changed over time with Lucy Davidowitz's war against the Jews and others. Um and the two major paradigm shifts that I experienced were first the Eichmann trials, which was like uh it was like watching hanging chads in my house. You know, everybody was uh gathered around the television set to find out uh what the Eichmann trial would be on television, and then The Holocaust sort of got framed as public conversation as opposed to a shameful private aspect of our home life. And then the next one was probably the Holocaust miniseries, which uh, I experienced as kitsch when it was happening, but then saw what um, a major shift in uh, cultural understanding it brought about, ranging from uh, extending the War Crimes Act in Germany as the first, for the first time, Germany. Uh, had an intergenerational conversation about this. And it also changed, starting then, and with increasing velocity, uh, we got into what was quaintly known in the YIVO Institute as Shoah business. So that now, it seems that every year, there's a Best Holocaust Movie Award. um, And... um, This was uh, done for the New Yorker right after uh, Bernini was scrambling over bodies to get up to the top and grab his. Um, uh, After I'd read that he was inspired by Maus to do his movie, and uh, I was just trying to figure out how to get a time travel machine from Back to the Future and take it away from him. Um, And uh, this was called, uh, and thanks to all the little people who made this possible. Um, So... It, uh, basically, the the work grew, for me, grew out of a three-page comic strip I did called Mouse and an underground comic called Funny Aminals with a cover story by Robert Crumb about two foxes who eat a giant big-butted chicken woman, uh, uh, and they eat her, not sexually, but they're foxes, she's, that was 1972, and from that, I ended up, uh, making my own pop art, uh, Hoof, it's no use. No matter how much I run, I can't seem to get out of that mouse's shadow. No choice, got to keep moving. Huh? Who are you? Uh Who are you? Uh, your son, Dash, remember? A son? No, I'd remember if I had something like that. I still wrestle with the memory of my own father, and I don't want anyone thinking about me with the roiling emotions I feel toward him. Fine, I'm an undead priest with a full suit of epic armor. Just let me concentrate on my World of Warcraft game. Hey, see that thing back there? It's a monument I built to my father. I never dreamed it would get so big. It all started back in 71 when my pal Justin Green invited me to do a short strip for an underground comic called Funny Aminals. I had some notion for a story about a cartoon mouse caught in a mousetrap drawn on a 1950s horror comic style, but it didn't pan out. I was blocked. I was totally stuck until I sat in on one of Ken Jacobs' film classes at Harper College... Dash? Dash? Bah, kids today, they're just not interested in history. (laughs) Mouse, birth of a notion. I used to sit in on Ken Jacobs cinema class, far out, cartoons instead of art today. Shh. What's the difference between those anthropomorphic animals and these subhuman minstrels? This jazz age Mickey Mouse is just Al Jolson with big ears. Eureka! My strip for funny animals, race in America. Cats with burning crosses, lynched mice, Ku Klux Cats! Shit, I know bupkis about being black in America, bupkis. Then Hitler's notion of Jews as vermin offered a metaphor closer to home. Now, this was all in the context of uh, wanting to find a story to tell. Uh, Comics as a narrative medium leads toward that. Certain obligations came with it, and despite that, thanks to all the little people drawing I did, I very rarely come out into the world of becoming the Elie Wiesel of the comic book. I'm scared of that role. On the other hand, I keep finding that mouse has put me in the crosshairs of it because no matter what I do, I'm constantly being chased by that monument, by that 500-pound mouse, and it incurs certain obligations. And among the central obligations are the familial ones, that no matter what I do, I'm left with the notion that the past hangs over the future. Um, playing with my daughter Nadja there. And both of them have had a fairly complex relationship to this because they say that I don't talk that much about my own past and it's just available to them in, an, in this book. That Nadja found out that my mother had killed herself from reading Mao's when she was about 12 years old. Both of my kids have found themselves leaning into public works beyond resume building for their college applications as a an actual trope that probably came with the weird burdens that uh, come with this territory as it moves on through generations. And I've never wanted to pass it along. I never thought of myself as part of a second generation. It was a concept that came into being while I was working on Mao's I went to one meeting and found that all we had in common was we didn't trust groups. So I never went to another. And I, I, I definitely didn't go after it. At the end of it, there was an announcement for a second-generation singles uh, meeting. <laughs> and I just couldn't imagine the pickup lines in any useful way. So uh, Father's Guiding Hand. Hey, Dash, look at what Papa has for you. A present. Yep, it's been in my family for years. My dad gave it to me when I was a little boy. It's old, huh? And now I'm giving it to you. What is it, a monster? It's magical. It's, it's getting bigger. Yes, it makes you feel so worthless you don't believe you even have the right to breathe. <laughs> and just think, someday you'll be able to pass it on to your son. <laughs> Thanks, Dad. I was aware of the problematics when sitting at an airport piece of lawn smoking in France with my daughter, who must have been maybe 11 or 12, and we're just telling jokes and talking to each other, and she decides to tell me a joke, and the joke is... What's worse than biting into an apple and finding a worm in it? So I thought I knew the answer, but then she says, No, the Holocaust! And and that's basically the problem that comes with trying to align one's daily life through generations that lead through a crossroads in history. Um, So... When Ren put me in the position of doing a presentation, I'm not really prepared to present, except insofar as I can say the second thoughts about Mao's came early. Like uh, Ren asked me to pull a slide of this from the meta mao's book, which were some notes I made in a sketchbook about an L.A. Holocaust conference on Kristallnacht in 1988. I only went because they said there'd be the children of perpetrators and uh, the children of victims, and I just had never met a children of perpetrator. Uh, there was only one there, and she was just such a wreck that I spent most of my time comforting her, saying, it's all right. <laughs> um, in the course of this thing, there was something interesting that relates directly to Timothy Snyder's thing, which is Harry Mulish is making a presentation. He's a guy who wrote a book called The Assault, and the Part of the conference where we're on a panel together is about that whole Adorno thing of art after the Holocaust. And he's basically saying, well, I was able to make a book about what happened in the ghettos and in the occupation, but I would never do it about the camps. That's not the role of a novelist. I found that really weird parsing. And he said, that has to be left to the historians. And there were historians at this conference. Um, and then when I got up, all I could really say was... Yeah, the historians are really important. I I ended up getting a context for what happened to me, but history is far too important to be left to historians. Uh, They're as biased and as narratively uh, veering through their own agendas as any memoirist, novelist, or beyond, and it's only by putting everyone together that one could have any form of knowledge and memory worth having. At some point, I was invited to the Holocaust Museum in the 80s to see if there should be a Mao's show. And I said, look... Mao's doesn't need the Holocaust Museum, the Holocaust Museum doesn't need Mao's, it should be for primary sources if at all, but what you do need is to expand the notion, because I still don't understand why there's a Holocaust Museum in Washington where very few Jews were killed except, I don't even know who, some of them were (laughs) blacklisted maybe. But basically, what was amazing to me was that they agreed with me when I suggested that there be a show about what was going on then in Yugoslavia. And they said, well, we don't have space. We do things many years in advance. So together, we found a space next to some elevators. And I said, I'll ask some artists. We can put art up. But what's not climate controlled? Well, that's OK. We'll put up Xeroxes. It's not about the art. It's about the gesture. And they were with me on this. So we were moving forward. And then at some point, I get a letter asking what the show should be called. And I said, and I'm just beginning to form letters to various artists to make pictures about Yugoslavia. And I said, well, how about genocide now? And that's when uh, the breaks went on. I said, well, we can't do that. I said, why not? Well, we're a government organization, and we haven't declared it a genocide. The UN hasn't declared it a genocide. Can't we say just war in former Yugoslavia? I said, it's not as catchy. I have a background in bubblegum card creation, and I know catchy. And then they say, well, do you have any other titles? And I say, okay, how about never again and again and again? And... It's at that point that they said, if you're going to be like that, we can't do a show together. We'll take the Time Life show of photographs. And I said, you had a show? Do it. All I want is the gesture of moving beyond the specific. Because uh, as I just showed you, even Mao's grew out of an impulse toward the general, toward uh, racism and oppression in a context other than my parents' Eastern European family. I have no idea how long I've been speaking. I'll just tell you that uh, MetaMouse is a book I'm doing for the 25th anniversary of Mouse. It comes complete with 1992 technology of an updated DVD of my CD-ROM that includes audio conversations with my father that are um, uh, linked to various panels and pages. It has rough sketches. It has uh, drafts and various means of uh, using the space on the DVD to expand what had been a now- Harder to read than Aramaic CD-ROM. I'll read you the two-page introduction, if I can. You know, Mouse has had a far larger impact in the world than I ever expected. 25 years ago, I had only hoped it might be discovered sometime after I died. It's swell to get recognition, but it's kind of hard to be seen behind a mouse mask. The book seems to loom over me like my father once did. Journalists and students still want to answer the same few, want answers to the same few questions. Why comics? Why mice? Why the Holocaust? Yikes. Or to quote my forefathers, eye. But I finally thought I would finally try to answer as fully as I could. That way, when asked in the future, maybe I could just say, never again. And maybe I could even get my damn mouse mask off. If I can't breathe in this thing. Unf, erk, grunt, ah. So that became three chapters, why the Holocaust, in conversation with Hilary Schutt, that includes things like my sources, my Holocaust, what happened within my family. And it includes these books published in Ukrainian, Yiddish, Polish, that were made right after the war and published by Jewish organizations when they were returning to Poland that my mother had on her shelves. And they were my first exposure to... Something rational beyond the kind of stories in the back of a cab that I was describing. They were mostly in texts I couldn't understand, but a couple of them had pictures. And unbeknownst to me, until I began working on MetaMouse, the graphic design of these rather humble books was a big influence on the Mouse chapters that were being published. In despite no popular demand. But the work that's been done now by me and by others has allowed me to get a, a better framework for what happened. Like a cousin of mine, I discovered, has been very involved in the genealogy, tracing back the Spiegelman family, and he made what basically is the rough version of this incredible chart of the family going back into the 1880s, before World War II, and what was left in 1945. And that was my Holocaust, a fractal of the larger one. Why mice? There's lots of things to say and lots of answers. What might be interesting here is really in the politics of, uh or the demolition derby of the suffering tournament, of who suffered more. Like when it comes up in all of the foreign editions, each country had a different way of taking Mao's in. There are now 30 or more. Uh, different editions, all of which had the same cover, which was an especial problem in Germany. The demolition derby in Germany was such that they couldn't show pictures of the swastika except on serious historical works, and I had made a comic book. The publisher who later became the Minister of Culture, uh, Michael Naumann, got dispensation. It was on the cover, one of the few books with a ho- uh, swastika on the cover in Germany. And much to my shock, with unintended consequences, I saw a documentary called Romper Stomper about a neo Nazi kid in Germany, and in his hovel, he actually as a bookstore poster because it was the only swastika the poor kid could get, you know? Another thing that happened in Germany was when I first went there, all the focus, of course, was on the past, not on the interdynamics of my relationship with my father. And there's a lot of denial and resistance in the form of, don't you think it's in bad taste, asked one journalist, to have a comic book about the Holocaust. And after saying, I just thought the Holocaust was in bad taste, I couldn't really continue the conversation. So each country had its own interaction with all these things. One of the interesting ones was Poland, in which... Uh, There's a demonstration when it came out after many, many false starts because the calumny of showing Poles as pigs, even if some of the Polish pig masks had. People who behaved well, some behaving badly, they found it an absolute libel. So he burned the book. It was a very small demonstration. In the right, there's a photograph of the translator and publisher appearing at the window at the demonstration wearing a pig mask. And he said he felt like the uh, Danish king greeting his people, you know, Um, in... Israel, there's something really interesting where a relative was unhappy that I described his father as a Jewish policeman, which he was, because that's kind of an unhappy thing to have in your family. But even worse, that I described his uncle as a Jewish policeman, where he was just a fellow traveler. So in Israel, my publisher had to have me change the hat that the uncle is wearing to a fedora so that he wouldn't be mistaken for a Jewish policeman. And in the course of this, I learned something that's genuinely interesting, which is Israel and Germany are the only two countries in the world that have libel laws that do not stop at the grave. And therefore, the shared history is impressive. If I have a minute more, I just want to segue to make life easier for Francine, which is in why Comics, I was going to show you some very beneficial things that happened as a result of Mao's, like opening the way for other very serious journalists like Joe Sacco, who's a very accomplished comic book artist who just came out with a book called Footnotes in Gaza, entering himself and embedding himself with what would be known on the other side of the wall as terrorists to uncover a minor uh, massacre in uh, uh, right, the run to the Suez crisis, and very meticulously detailing survivors' accounts against official accounts, showing a fractal of what happened. On the other hand, Mouse, which was born in a vacuum, there was just wasn't such a thing as a Holocaust comic book when I started, and there was no such thing as a, in the popular mind certainly, as a graphic novel, at all. It's now led to all these improvements on Maus, like this by the Anne Frank Institute called The Search, which in its advertising says, a great teaching tool now in color. It's drawn in a kind of Tintin style and was published internationally and was a way of uh, trying to make something didactic and mouse was never born of especially didactic concerns, which might make it a more useful teaching tool nevertheless. Similarly, there's now a subgenre of Holocaust comics in France, in Japan, where they just also did Mein Kampf as a comic book, the problem there is you definitely see it through a German frame. There's very well intended other memoirs that have come out, uh, like this one, We Are On Our Own, Mother and Daughter. Uh, surviving the Holocaust. There's a comic book artist who used to do Sergeant Rock and the Easy Company doing a comic book about an artist who goes from Terrace into Auschwitz and survives by doing pencil drawings with captions and balloons. There's now uh, the guy who did Cerebrus, the Art Vark, has something called something like Jew House or something. And he, he's very polemical even in his work that he's known for, Cerebrus. But here he says every comic book artist should do a Holocaust comic, it's his obligation. There's was also from the earnest and the strange to the absolute uh, roots of where I came from, which was the Tijuana Bibles that showed what Blondie and Dagwood were doing between boxes in the daily newspaper. There's now something called the comic book Holocaust by Johnny Ryan, who keeps the underground comics flame alive. So now A Sore Loser's Tale by Fart Spiegelman. Check it out, Dad. My book about your experiences in a Nazi concentration camp. It's a huge hit. Uh, It's on the bestseller list. Fart, I have something to tell you. That story about me surviving the Nazi concentration camps? Yeah, well, I made the whole fucking thing up. (laughs) What? But it has to be true. What about those concentration camp numbers on your arm? Oh, those are just some lotto numbers I read on my arm back in 1984 because I never bathed, the numbers have never washed off. Why would you make a story like this up? Sniff. because I wanted attention. And since we're being totally honest uh, here, I should tell you that we're not Jewish. Gah! I'm not even circumcised. Check out my enormous foreskin. Look what I can do when I pull my foreskin back. Cute, huh? How come I don't have a foreskin? I want to do that, too, one year later. At least the whole experience gave me a great idea for my new comic in the shadow of no foreskin. So I'm actually as proud of this as Al Cap was when uh, Lil Abner and Daisy May were turned into a fuck comic book knowing that he had arrived. It's even better than the uh, more formal consecration I got, which was, I suppose, the Pulitzer Prize and even perhaps more to the point, the uh, guest appearance on The Simpsons. (laughs) which is like being knighted in America. Just one brief careen around to obscenities that I find more difficult to swallow than one that comes from my underground comic roots, which are the Anne Frank franchise. The Anne Frank franchise is a big one. After doing this book, The Search, which is very earnest educational material, there's a comic two comic book graphic novels at least out called Anne Frank. Uh, The one on the right is the authorized biography put out by the Anne Frank House in many different languages. So it's not just stuck with her story in an attic, but can open up to deal with Nazis uh, more directly. It's by the people who same team who brought you the 9-11 report illustrated, which was the only thing recently I found that was harder to read than the 9-11 report. And then the true obscenity, the one that I should use as a segue for you, is because now manga is really popular, I found one that was the edge of manga. Anne Frank and Astro Boy take you through the Holocaust together as a crossover hit, which brings us to the Holocaust Anne Frank industry. Thank you. Thanks. This podcast was brought to you by the New York Institute for the Humanities at NYU and the Arthur L. Carter Journalism Institute. This episode was produced by Micah Hazel. You can find us on Stitcher, iTunes, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. For more information, visit us at nyihumanities.org.